0: Good morning, Grace. All right, this morning's scripture reading we found in Exodus 34, 10 through 28. You can find that in the Pew Bible on page 74. That's Exodus 34, 10 through 28. All right, let's dive in. And he said, behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels. Such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites. Take care. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go. Lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their Asherim. For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month Abib. For in the month, Abib, you came out from Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep. The firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with the lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work. But on the seventh day, you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest, you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of the wheat of harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. This is the word of God.
1: Good morning. We are continuing Today, in our sermon series in the book of Exodus, if you've been tracking with us, you know that this is the story of Israel, God rescuing them out of slavery to bring them to glory, to bring them to himself. That's the end goal. It's not just to give them the law, it's so that they would be his people and he would be their God and that his presence would dwell among them. This is their story, but it's also our story. It's a story how, how God has redeemed a people for himself, redeemed us out of slavery, and the goal is not just to rescue us out of slavery and say good luck, but no, to rescue us and say, I will dwell among you, I will be with you in the most intimate of ways. So from slavery to glory. Today's text from Exodus 34, the title is Identity Through Covenant. Identity Through Covenant. You're probably well aware that the word identity is a buzzword now in our culture. There's this sense, there's this pitch that the world is making that people have to find their own identity. We have to determine who we really are. And in one sense, right, on this basic level, that is the story of humanity, isn't it? Every person on the planet is on a quest to figure out who am I and why am am I here? That's like fundamental to being human. But in another sense, our culture has taken this uh, search for meaning to a whole new level. We do what we do best. We destroy things. We take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing. It becomes an idol. And that's what our culture has done. And so we have things like identity politics. Oh, you didn't think I was going to go there, right? So, where your identity politics, meaning where, you're, where your politi- political view is not just a, your perspective on politics, it's not just where, where, where you think how people should be governed, no, now your political view is intertwined with who you are. It defines you so now you're no longer disagreeing with someone's political view you're disagreeing with who that person is who they fundamentally are can you see why politics is now so divisive and vitriolic it's being played out on multiple fronts gender identity no longer is your gender male or female a fixed reality a part of god's good design which has been the view by the way for the vast majority of human history up until now no gender is now considered a a fluid reality and each person has to decide and your gender and sexuality can change and it's so important it's not just a part of who you are it is who you are it defines who you are it is your identity again can you see how problematic this becomes Where conversations around gender and sexuality, which should involve healthy dialogue, now they're an attack on someone's fundamental being, their identity. Why do I bring this up? Because actually this text, as surprising as it might sound, uh, as the people of God, we have to understand who we are and what defines our identity. In the midst of all the confusion, we need clarity on this fundamental question. Do you know your identity? Or you could ask yourself, who am I? How do you answer that question? Who are you? This is important because the truth is, unless your identity is rooted in God and His design for your life, you will have the crushing burden of having to figure it out on your own. And our hearts are so warped, so bent on rejecting God's authority that any attempt at trying to determine and self-identify will always fail. The good news is God doesn't leave us alone. He doesn't leave us to this crushing burden. God gives us a lasting identity, a sense of who we really are. But look, that identity is rooted in a relationship with Him. And that's true for the Israelites back then, 5,000 years ago, and it's true for us today. So, identity through covenant. Two points today. Point number one God's covenant gives us identity. We're in the story of Israel. They're at Mount Sinai. How did they get there? God has already delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. He did signs and wonders, right? The plagues. He leads them through the wilderness. He calls them to trust him in the middle of the wilderness, then he brings them to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, 40 days, and God gives him the tablets, the Ten Commandments, and the entire law. And the goal is God is saying, I'm going to dwell with you, and these are the conditions of my covenant, of our relationship, and it's the law. And the end goal is, I'm, I'm going to show you how to build a tabernacle because my presence gonna, is going to live among you, literally right in the center of your midst. And yet the people, while Moses is up on the mountain, they rebel against God. They worship the golden calf. In other words, they break covenant immediately. One day they say, yes, all that you say we will do. The next day they say, ah, eh, let's build a golden calf. And God threatens to leave his people at this point, And Moses intercedes for them. And God graciously decides to show them mercy and says, I will go with them. I will will forgive my people, I will show grace and mercy, and now Moses is back up the mountain a second time to receive a renewal of the covenant. That's why he has new tablets with him. And that's why it says in verse 10 of chapter 34, God is speaking, but by the way, God speaks this whole time. God is initiating and he is ratifying his own covenant. He says, behold, I am making a covenant. God is saying, I am renewing my covenant commitment to lead my people Israel into the promised land. And don't miss this because this is huge. God is reinstituting a covenant to a people that have been utterly faithless to Him. Or you could say, utterly unfaithful to Him. As soon as they get in the wilderness, they're complaining. As soon as they get into trouble, they're complaining. As soon as Moses is up there too long, they're building a golden calf. They don't trust God, and God says, I am committing myself to you, even though you have not committed yourself fully to me. Remember last week, chapter 34, verse 6 and 7, God proclaimed his goodness, right, to Moses. Here's my glory, it's my goodness. And what was his goodness? He says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is God being true to his character. And that's really important because often people read the Old Testament, maybe you have, you've come to this conclusion at times, you're reading the Old Testament and you see this judgment side of God. And then you read the New Testament and you see this merciful side of God and you can conclude like many people do, they must be two different gods. I want you to see that's entirely False. God doesn't just judge sin in the Old Testament. He also judges sin in the New Testament. Just look to the cross. Yeah, he judges sin. And God is also merciful in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. He's telling this unfaithful people, I'm going to overlook your offense and recommit myself to you and give you the the same covenant I gave before. This is how loving he is they constructed a golden calf. They, in essence, saying, God, we are rejecting your word and your law, which is a serious matter to God. We're unwilling to be ruled by God's word. How serious is it? Look at the language in verse 16, 15 and 16. He uses language to show what it looks like to worship false gods. He's using marital language here. If you read verse 16, there's language there. They were whoring after other gods. In other words, here's the principle. God is making clear. Any spiritual idolatry is in fact spiritual adultery. They were unfaithful. They committed adultery against God. And yet in the face of this kind of unfaithfulness, what does God do? He remains faithful. They break covenant, but He won't. Do you see the love of God on display in this moment? Do you you understand the weightiness of this love? It's a sacrificial love. It always has been. Old Testament and New Testament. It's a love where God is willing to absorb our cost, our guilt, because His love never falters and it never fails. Do you see the love of God for us today as His people? Consider all the ways that you and I have turned from God's rule in your life, how we've tried to live life on our own. Your rudeness toward your spouse that you feel completely justified in but is sinful. Your gossip about a fellow church member. Kids, you making fun of your siblings disrespecting your parents, all of us, our selfishness, our greed, our deceit. In so many ways, we say, thanks for this covenant, God. Thanks for your word, but no thanks. And yet God is so loving, he cannot fail to stay committed to us. Keep in in mind, God's covenant with the Israelites is rooted in his presence living among them. This is important. Moses already knew this. That's why he said chapter 33, verse 16. Moses said to God when he was making his appeal, he said, Is it not in you going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people? In other words, God, isn't your presence what sets us apart? Isn't your presence among us what we find our identity rooted in? And the answer is yes. 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 And what does God's presence among them do? Verse 10 of chapter 34. Behold, I am making a covenant before all people. I will do marvels, such as not been created in all the earth or in any nation. All the people among whom you are, and whom you're living among, shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing I will do with you. The word for marvels there is the same word used for the plagues that God used in Egypt To bring his people out of out of slavery god is reminding the israelites that it is by his marvels he saved them listen god's salvation of his people is meant to shape the identity of his people that's what he's saying my salvation shapes identity That's true for them, and that's true for us. God is saying, You trusted me to redeem you out of slavery, Israel. Now trust me to continue to do great marvels as I fulfill my promise to you and bring you into the land of Canaan, the land of promise. God's covenant with Israel is what gave them their identity. And this is true for us as followers of Christ today. We're no longer under the Mosaic Law. We'll get to that later, are we? We know that's true. We're no we're no longer under what's called the old covenant. Hebrews 8:6 says, "But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises." We're no longer the old, under the old covenant, the law, the Mosaic covenant. We're under what is called the new covenant. Mediated not by Moses, but by Jesus Christ himself. In other words, we have better promises rooted in a better covenant. God has promised to rescue us from sin and slavery. Not physically, but sin and slavery to death and sin. How? Through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he promises not just to live among us, right, in a tent. No, he promises to dwell inside of us by his Holy Spirit. Literally, we are the new temple of God and he promises us, just like them, I'll take you home to be with me one day in paradise. God's covenant through Jesus Christ gives you identity. It tells you your value. It gives your life meaning and significance. The question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that your deepest sense of who you are what makes you you is rooted in God and what he has done for you. You see, this is what you were designed to build your life upon. Not your work, not your relationships, not your money, not your future. Right? Those are all good things, but they cannot be ultimate things. They can't be identity-shaping things. Only God's covenant with us is meant to be that for us. And It is. God's covenant gives us identity. It's true for the Israelites and it's true for the people of God today. Lesson number two. God's covenant entails commands and worship which reinforce our identity. First, God lays out what he promises to do. He says, here's what I will do as a part of this covenant. I'll drive out all the Canaanites in the land. I will bring you into the land, a good land flowing with milk and honey. That's what I'm going to do for you. And then he says, now Israel, here's your part. Here's what I'm calling you to. And this is important to understand that even when God's people break covenant, he doesn't change his standards. He doesn't cut some of the laws out and go, well, that one was kind of hard. Maybe we'll just get rid of that. No, his laws are difficult. He knows that. I look at one theologian, Jay Mottier said, quote, he, God, adjusted neither his holy character nor his holy law to suit the sinfulness of his people. Why? Why, would, why wouldn't God lower his standard? Why would God cut things out? Here's why. Because, because God's commands are meant to reinforce their identity. So what does God command Israel to do? Verse 12, don't make any political treaties with other nations. Verse 13 to 15, don't participate in the religious practices of other nations. In fact, tear down their altars and their idols. Verse 16, don't join in marital relationships with other nations. And then he gets even more into it and in the rest of the book you're gonna kinda, we're going to see there's, even, there's a lot more laws he's summarizing here. But why does he highlight these in this covenant renewal? Why these specific commands? Because these are going to be the unique temptations for Israel to find their security in. Will they trust God by living as a set-apart people? Or will they compromise their identity in order to fit in and find security in the things of this world? That's why he's warning them against these treaties and the religious practices and the intermarriage. God is calling them to find their identity in him alone. That's why he says in verse 14, you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. God is saying, I am jealous for your affection and your commitment. Now, we hear the word jealousy and immediately we think jealousy is a bad thing right we tell our kids don't be jealous we try to tell ourselves don't be jealous and most often is a bad thing but not always if someone is is hitting on my wife if someone is is trying to kind of be too friendly with my wife trying to gain her affection if i do nothing that would that something is seriously wrong why because i am and i should be jealous for her affection god is jealous for our affection in the best in the purest and the holiest way possible and he's jealous of our for our commitment he will not share us with other false gods and that's not wrong that's god being absolutely true to his goodness he knows that we live out our true god-given identity when we make him our highest priority look god doesn't just want you to follow his rules just like God wasn't interested in Israel just saying, okay, follow these rules and then we're good and then God accepts us. No, he wants their heart. Isn't it clear? I want your heart. God gives them the commands because he, want, he wants their heart to value him above all else. He wants to be your highest priority. God's jealousy says, I want to be first in your life. His jealousy means he wants priority. He calls for to be your highest priority so the question is is god the highest priority in your life is that evident in how you spend your day is this evident in how you spend your time and your money you say yeah god is my highest priority okay show me what you do if you get up every day and don't even think twice about god's word or communicating with him is he your highest priority or is he just a genie in the bottle or is he just a crisis god not only does God want to be our priority, God com- God's commands call us to holiness. In other words, he's calling us to faithfulness. God is saying to Israel in this covenant renewal, I want you to demonstrate your faithfulness by obeying my commands. This is true for us as believers today. Look what Peter says. He doesn't lower God's call to holiness He says as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance but as he who called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written you shall be holy for I am holy. Why does God call us to holiness? Is it to earn his love? No. No. You already have that love in Jesus. He's already given himself fully to you. You don't have to earn it, no. Why is God calling us to holiness? It's, here's the reason. We, we get so messed up in this point. We get so tripped up in this. Why does he command us to holiness? Why does he keep the bar so high? Why? Because God is committed to shaping you more and more into his image. That's why. As one author put it, God is committed to making you into something that is breathtakingly beautiful. And you say, well, I kind of wish God was more interested in my happiness. Right? I I would love for God to say, hey, here are my commands. Be happy. Do anything to make yourself happy. I'd be all over that, God. I want a God who will make me happy. Look, God is interested in your happiness. The problem, here's the problem. Let's talk about happiness for a minute. The problem is our flawed perspective is we, we think the thing right in front of us is the thing that will make us happy. Right? I just want to be married. I just want a child. I just want more money. I just want a better car. I just want a bigger house. I just want to be liked. I just want to be prettier. I just want to be stronger. I just want to, and then you fill in your blank. I just want to what? What do you want? What do you want? And that might provide temporary happiness. A little money might be nice, right? But no, but that's temporary. That's not eternal happiness. If God were to come down and ask a child a seven-year-old child child what do you want I will give you anything you want to make yourself happy I mean would he even make it through the day would he I want mounds and mounds of candy and I want to be able to eat it all in one day okay you'll see me sooner than you think he said "Well, that's a seven-year-old well what about a 17 year old Whatever you want to make yourself happy. What do you want? You think they'll make it throughout the day? What about a 37-year-old? Or a 57-year-old? Right? Same question. Different stuff. I want blank. We all think we know what will make us happy. But God is a jealous God. He knows that your holiness is what will lead to your happiness. Because your holiness will lead to greater intimacy and experience of this God who is in your life. Paul said, I want, you want to know what Paul said? I want? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Anyone, is that your deepest longing? Anyone say, yep, that's really what I've been always wanting. I didn't say this would make life easier. No, holiness will likely make your life harder in a fallen world. But God is on a mission to shaping you into a holy being like him. And you are like, how does that happen? How does this play out? Give us more details. Come back next week. That's the whole sermon. Right, Brady? Yes. Yeah. Pastor Brady's back, everybody. Woo! <clears throat> You'll see him at the end of service. That's God's desire. Shape us into a being just like Him. And the more you are like Him, I can tell you God's Word promises the more you are like Him, the more He shapes you into His image, the greater joy and the greater satisfaction you will experience. Because God is the greatest, the the most joyful being in the universe. God is jealous for our affection, our commitment, for us to prioritize him and pursue holiness in him, are you doing that? Are you pursuing holiness? So, after reiterating a summary of his commands, God then reminds Israel of the key festivals that they are to observe. There's three, and these festivals reinforce their identity as the people of God. These festivals are, on di- are, put, are meant to be put on display to show the world this is what sets us apart. This is why we are distinct. He mentions the Feast of Unleavened Bread, verse 18. That feast included Passover, and the whole thing was meant to commemorate the Lord's redemption of them out of slavery, out of Egypt, and they commemorate every year. This defines who we are. God saves us. We don't save ourselves. The observance of Sabbath, every single week, every seven days, you take a day off and rest. Every other culture is working, you're resting, and they're going to go, what are those crazy people doing? And you're going to remind yourself and one another, we trust God alone to be our provider. And then the Feast of Weeks at the end of harvest, a yearly celebration where they gather together and they throw a big party and they remind themselves, God doesn't just pro- provide bread and water, he provides bountifully for his people all these festivals were built into israel's yearly calendar to give them regular opportunities to worship the one true god and they were meant to declare to the surrounding nations this is what a life rooted in god this is what our covenant identity with god looks like as christians we no longer have to keep these old covenant festivals the New Testament says that these festivals had a purpose as a part of the law to lead us to Christ, but now we have a new identity through God's covenant with Jesus Christ. And we do worship the Lord in some prescribed ways in the New Covenant. For instance, we don't observe Sabbath, we don't observe Passover, but we do gather on the Lord's day every Sunday in obedience to the Lord's command in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Did you know what we are doing here is a direct way to honor Christ and his call for us? Did you know that? I know you know that. You're here, right? But did you know that if you don't do this, you are actually straying from God's command to make you what he wants you to be? You say, all I got to do is show up? Well, that's not all you got to do, but that's a big part of it. To not gather each week because you don't feel like it or you'd rather watch online or any other excuse is actually sin. It's a rejection of one of the primary ways you can proclaim to the world this is what our covenant identity looks like. Of course, there are times when you're sick and you're traveling, yes, but for the most part, your weekly rhythm should include making gathering for worship a priority. Is that a priority for you? Do you know that on average, the devoted, this is devoted Christians in America, the most devoted Christians in America now only go to church twice a month or less. How is that? How is it even possible? to live out your faith in, a, in an increasingly hostile environment? How is it even possible? Would we expect our soldiers to, to go practice and do their drills once a, once a month and be ready for battle? Let alone, how is it possible to live out the, the one another in commands if we're not actually one anothering with one another? God has specifically designed this to be a weekly reminder. And I'm pleading with every Christian here What do you need to do? What do you need to do in order for your life to show that your identity is rooted in Christ alone and not in your job or sports or work or family or sleep or whatever else is getting in the way? Not only that, we have other identity-shaping acts. Baptism and Lord's Supper. These are covenant-shaping, covenant-identifying acts. Baptism is the one-time declaration publicly That you have turned from your sin and you've trusted in jesus christ alone it's a picture that shows you've died with christ Right, you go down into the water why is that a picture of death because if you stayed there you'd be dead right so it's a picture of death jesus went into the ground he died and then you come up out of the water picture that you've risen with christ and this is for a believer unbelievers aren't don't get baptized because it's not a picture of something that's happened yet. It's for believers who've trusted in Jesus Christ, and then they go into these waters, and they say publicly, Jesus Christ is Lord, and they declare it in baptism in water. It's meant to be a beautiful picture. It's meant to be an act of obedience. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. If you've never been baptized as a believer, what is stopping you from committing to honor Christ and follow him in obedience today? Not only that, we also have the Lord's Supper. We're doing that today. This is our weekly reminder or monthly reminder or or as Jesus says, as often as you do it, right? Of what Jesus has done for us. Just like the Israelites, we were enslaved, not physically, we were enslaved to sin. And it's it's why we find sin so appealing it's why from a young age we want to we want to assert our independence not just from our parents but from god himself right the idea that we can determine our own identity is rooted in a lie from satan himself the problem is no matter what you look to to find meaning in life you will never find satisfaction your sexuality can't be your identity your job can't be your identity. Your family can't be your identity. Your health can't be your identity. None of those things can stand the pressure of being the very foundation of your existence. What is the one thing that you can't live without? What do you look to daily to provide security, a sense of approval and identity? What is that for you? Whatever that thing is, that is, that is acting as your functional God right now. And listen, I said this before, any false God, a functional God, it will demand more from you than you can give, and it will never give you what you desire. You see, just like the Israelites, every one of us are covenant breakers. We don't give God our highest affection and commitment. We admit that. That's why Jesus came down. That's why God said, I am not okay with you living unfaithfully. I'm going to do something about it. If you want to see my glory, it will consume you unless I do something about it. And so Jesus comes down from heaven and he lives the perfect life and he obeys the Mosaic law fully, perfectly, and he, and he honors his father with the highest affection and the greatest level of commitment. He lived the life you and I should have lived, but never could. And then he died on a cross. He took God's righteous judgment against your sin and mine. And he took the ultimate punishment for our sin, death. He did this because he loves you immensely. That's why on the night that Jesus was arrested, he was with his disciples and he instituted communion, the Lord's Supper. And he shared a meal with them. And then he held up the bread and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he held up the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Do you see what Jesus is saying? God's new covenant with us with those who trust in Jesus as Savior, is a covenant sealed in his blood. The law can reveal God's holiness. The law can expose our sin, but the law can't save us. But Jesus can. Only God can save us from God, right? Only God's hand could cover Moses on the rock. God had to save us from himself. And so Jesus comes and he dies so you could live. He bore God's judgment against your sin so you could experience God's forgiveness against sin. Jesus took the guilt of our breaking covenant so that now through faith in him, you and I can have the benefit of a God who always keeps covenant. How do you experience this? You admit that you have sinned you admit that there are false gods in your life and you turn from them and you say, God, I, don't, I, don't, I know those things will not give me identity and I'm trusting in Jesus alone to give me forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's how you enter into a relationship with God. That's what makes you a Christian. Have you trusted in Jesus as your savior today? You see, when we observe communion, we remember that God is the ultimate covenant keeper. And through union with Christ, we now have access to all of his covenant promises and blessings, the greatest of which God says is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Look, you might never, you might, days, there might be days where you feel like, I don't even want to stay, I don't even trust in myself. I don't even have, I don't believe in myself. And God says, I know but I'm always there with you. I will never fail you. Even when you give up on yourself, I can't give up on you. I've made a covenant with you. Whatever you used to look to for your sense of worth is no longer what defines your life. If you're now a Christian, Jesus defines your life. He is your new identity and that's good news because Jesus can handle being your everything. You say, can he handle this? Yup, put it on him. Can he handle that? Yup, put it on him. Well, this thing happened in life. I never even planned for it. Yup, he can handle it. He can handle everything. He has a foundation that can never be shaken. And just like God promised the Israelites, he will do marvels among us. Take us to the promised land right? He will do great things in and through us, and and He will empower us by His Spirit to be His witnesses. Listen, church, God is doing awesome things among us. Did you know that? Every day of the week, God is working through this church right here in this community and around the world. It is amazing for me to have a front row seat, and I pray you get glimpses of it. Not only that, the beauty of the new covenant It says in Hebrews 10, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The beauty of the new covenant is it not only commands our holiness, it empowers our holiness. That's the miracle of God living inside you by his spirit. And we don't pursue holiness to earn his love. We, We pursue it because we already have it. We already are complete. And slowly he's shaping us to reflect his glory. And then the final day, right, for the Israelites, the final goal, promised land. For us, the final goal is not anywhere here on earth. We're pilgrims. The final goal and the resurrection of Jesus that we sang about and celebrated a few minutes ago, it guarantees that one day, God himself will fulfill his final promise and take you home to be with him because in his presence, we learned this last week, in his face is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. All of this is made possible to give you an identity Through his new covenant in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would search our hearts, that you would help us in this time as we prepare to to take communion, to take the Lord's Supper. Lord, we want to do this in faith and in gratitude. We want to do it examining our hearts to remind ourselves and to confess to you our deepest desire is for you to be our highest priority and our greatest desire. God, most of all, I pray you would remind us that the blood of the new covenant shall never fail. It's a once and for all promise a commitment that you make that can never be broken. Oh God, if nothing else, may we, may we sigh a sigh of relief today. No matter what we did yesterday or this past week, no matter what news we're gonna get tomorrow, I pray that this reminder, this identity-shaping act of communion would remind us we are your people. You have done it all. You are beautiful. We pray in Christ's name, amen.